Okay, I am Aniol Esteban and I'm head of environment at the New Economics Foundation. I'm a biologist and environmental economist. And uh, so what's the link between nature and well-being? The link between nature and well-being is multiple. At one level, it provides everything we need to live. So it guarantees our survival. And that's kind of a, a very basic um, condition. But at the other level, it, it makes our life worth living. It delivers multiple benefits. And the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment uh, produced by the United Nations describes very well the different services that the natural environment provides to human beings using the ecosystem service framework. So um, that's a very good starting point. Um, it's very important to make clear that that uh, framework is obviously purely anthropocentric. It's about how, what nature does for us human beings. And it doesn't look about the value of nature per se. So in that framework, it includes things like um, provision of, of food, provision of uh, guaranteeing um, the stability of the climate, um, delivering um, pollination services, which is part of the of the food, so like the services that will guarantee the food. Um, risk, um, it, it minimizes our risk to, to shocks, like flood protection, but it also includes things like aesthetic value, recreational value, cultural values, spiritual values. So obviously nature contributes to our well-being in a multiple um, range of, of ways. Now, look at it from a public sector perspective. Nature contributes to our, um, to our mental health. It, it delivers mental health benefits, physical health benefits. Uh, it delivers a wide range of societal benefits. It contributes to our education. It can help reduce levels of crime. It can help urban regeneration. And um, so, as you can see, there is a, a, a huge range of, um, of, of areas and ways in which nature contributes to our well-being. So, individual well-being and collective. So, given that it's so useful, is it reasonable, as some environmental economists do, to try and put uh, a value on nature? I think it's very important to be um, clear with language here. So, um, I think that describing how nature contributes to humans' benefits and putting and describing some of those benefits in economic terms, per se, it's a useful exercise in that it helps you visualize where the benefits are created, where the costs are generated, who creates the benefits, who, who bears the costs, and that, as such, it's a useful radiography that can help identify actions that we can take as a society to make the most of nature or to deliver societal benefits or to be clever about how we manage it. However, the danger lies when, um, in, in, in how we use that information. If we are using that information to put the conservation of nature in a pure <coughs> conventional cost-benefit analysis framework, then that's dangerous. If we are using that information um, because we think that then we can create environmental markets 
and the markets will deliver the efficient level of nature conservation, then that's extremely dangerous because we know that markets are very inefficient in delivering public goods. So I don't see any problem in running the exercise of describing how nature contributes to our ben benefits us, not even describing those benefits in economic terms and in some cases putting a monetary value on them. I think the problem lies in how that values are used and what is the motivation that leads some people to use, uh, to want to do that. <coughs> and that's what that's what, what I think where the, the red lines are. I'm very glad you asked that because um, environmental groups, conserv nature conservation groups are not even clear themselves about where those red lines are. And we at NEF have started a process um, together with other nature conservation organizations to try to clarify where those red lines are. Because I think that the, the environmental movement has jumped onto nature valuation a bit blindly, believing that it's going to sort out all their problems. And they are starting to realize that actually it's a very dangerous game. Is there any evidence that, that uh, spending time in nature builds pro-environmental behavior? There is some evidence, but the latest we looked at it, which is about two years ago, showed that that evidence was a bit um, sparse and not particularly um, fully accepted yet. But the hypothesis is there. And one of the biggest pieces of information and evidence that exists, and I think it would be worth having a look at what's the latest they, they have done on that, is... Natural England runs this uh, survey called the Monitoring Engagement with the Natural Environment, mm -hmm. M-E-N-E. -E. And in that survey, they included some questions to see if, I mean, that's an ongoing survey that, that is running every year. And one of the sections they included temporarily was trying to track whether engagement with the natural environment, closeness to nature, being out there, led to more sustainable behaviors. And they found that there were some, some changes in people's um, attitudes and in people's values. But I think, I think and I'm, I'm speaking just of what I remember, so this needs to be checked with, with the document. But I think they found there were some changes in, in how it affected people's values and attitudes, but not necessarily a very strong change in behaviors. Um, what are the societal costs when, um, when a society loses its connection with nature? When you have a generation that grows up uh, spending very, very little time in nature or experiencing nature or becoming familiar with nature, what are the wider societal costs and impacts of that? Um, I would imagine that one of the biggest costs is that it increases humans' inability to understand why nature and the natural environment as a whole is so fundamental <coughs> to our economy and our society. It, it, it makes it more difficult for people to understand that nature underpins our socioeconomic system. And that obviously puts the whole society at risk of taking the wrong decisions. So that would be like the 
macro, <laughs> the macro cost of that, because because people lose that that touch. Another um, another big cost, I think, it's that there are some theories about the biophilia theory, showing how um, we humans are intrinsically and naturally um, programmed to engage and contact with nature. And that's still very lively within some of, of us individuals, whereas some others have been able to, to disconnect a bit more. But that natural connection with nature, um, or the lack of that connection with nature, explains many, seems to, to be an explanation, or seems to be the underlying factor explaining lots of um, mental illnesses or depression or all sort of mental um, men mental related uh, health issues um, and and there is evidence showing that more connection with nature, being outdoors, engaging with green spaces and so on uh, has positive effects on mental health and on physical health. There is also evidence showing that having more contact or access to green spaces incentivizes people to go out more, to do more physical exercise and obviously that has health benefits and has savings uh, to our health system. So I'm just trying to turn around your question and say, actually, uh, one of the costs, therefore, of not having contact with nature would be that you are going to have health costs and you could also have education costs and you would, you could have um, mental health, physical costs. These are these the, the health aspect is one of the of the clearest ones. Mm. And uh, the, the Fabian Society published a study a few, a few months ago uh, about um, called Pride of Place, which argued that the environmental movement needed to um, have kind of lost, con lost connection with people and that the way to re-engage people was to start at the local scale, a bit like Transition does, I guess, and that actually uh, the people have attachments to the places where they live, and it's that attachment needs to be the foundation you start with because people feel that they can affect that in their own backyard, and then from there you build out. Is that something that you would, you would, uh, you would agree with as well? I absolutely agree with that. I think that's, that's a very, um, very, very, very very um, strong um, argument and it's absolutely true. So sometimes the environmental movement, I think the environmental movement has, the, has done lots of good things and has succeeded many things, but it has not been effective enough for two reasons. One is the, the one that you mentioned, is, is one is because sometimes the environmental movement, and I include myself within that, um, we have talked about macro issues, big problems and people don't know where to start, or a big macro project or issues that people feel a bit lost about, and, and then they don't know where to engage or how to engage. So that then therefore starting from the local place makes lots of sense. But the other aspect, which I don't know if it's captured on the Fabian paper, I mean, I've heard about it, but I haven't read it in detail, is that sometimes the environmental movement has failed to recognize the social and economic realities that people face. And um, it's very hard, I mean, the environmental movement, I mean, it's very hard to tell someone to care about the environment if they don't have a job or if they might be moved 
from one place to another because they have financial insecurity or if they don't have a proper house or a decent uh, place where to live. Um, in those contexts, it's very difficult to go to people to talk, listen, we need to protect this because there is beautiful nudes here. Um, so you need to, so the environmental movement needs to move into the social and economic territory because we all know that things are interlinked and campaign about things which are out of their comfort zone like housing or minimum wage or all this very basic stuff that people need to have a decent life and then um, and then they can they, then you are creating a much more favorable environment and context a much more favorable context for people to care about the environment and take action in that benefit I mean people can care about their local place assuming that they will be able to live there for most of their life and sometimes that's not true because of the economic system in which we live because maybe in a particular town jobs are not there and people need to move away from there and 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 that's an, that's something that needs to be taken into account and uh, have you seen George Monbiot's rewilding book uh, I haven't I'm, I have young kids and I read very little <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. very bad at reading, but I read I read the reviews of the books. Okay, so you get the people that have read the books, and I make out my own opinion out of the other people. So I, I read some of his articles about rewilding. Yeah. Okay. So do so do you feel like rewilding uh, that actually there is a strong economic case nationally for rewilding that that should be a key part of sort of national economic policy. I think uh, I personally love the rewilding project. I have very strong preferences for nature conservation and biodiversity. So obviously I am very, very, I believe that it's a fantastic idea. However, so at, at the national level, I think um, rewilding is a great project. It makes it makes sense and, and there are lots of benefits. It's about how do we explain to the rest of society that rewilding makes sense? So the way I think about it is that at the moment, um, and it's it's the argument that we lay out in the Natural Solutions Report, at the moment nature is seen as a barrier to progress. We live in a context in which there is this narrative that says nature, it's nature or the economy. And when there are economic problems, protecting the environment is a luxury we can't afford. The opposite is true. Not caring about nature is a luxury we can't afford, actually. But the narrative, the predominant narrative, is one that says, no, uh, at the time of economic travel, you need to forget about nature. And then you hear George Osborne talking about gold plating European directives. You see DEFRA doing the red tape challenge that shows that actually there is not too much, there is not as, you know, uh, there is not too much legislation or regulation about the environment constraining the economy, which was the hypothesis, and then they did all that report that showed that actually the level of legislation was right. So um, there is this predominant narrative that makes it very difficult to protect nature because it's seen as a constraint rather than as a condition for progress. Um, how we move out, what we need to do is to create a narrative that puts nature at the heart of economic policies and well-being policies. And th that's rewilding is one solution to that. No? But I think that the way to explain to the rest of society or to decision makers to do that is that 
if you can communicate effectively that nature delivers a triple win, the triple win of, um, first of all, of, of giving you more resilience to have everything you need to live, okay? More resilience to floods because it prevents flood risks and uh, it will save some potential natural, it will prevent some natural disasters and that will save some money. It will also prevent some, it will make you more resilient to guarantee food provision. It will make you more resilient to uh, uh, maybe um, avoid pests. It will deliver all the things you need to live. That's the first benefit, the, fir the first win, okay? The second one is that it can help you do more with, with less. And that's something that governments should be very interested in, 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 in doing. So um, nature can be critical to help you deliver health outcomes and education outcomes and crime reduction outcomes in a cost-effective way. So nature should be, I mean, at the moment we have government departments working very much in silos and um, you have a nature conservation department, you will have a health department, you will have an education department. Nature should be cross-cutting. So, um, so nature should be at the heart of health policies, together with other things. Nature should be at the core of education policies, together with other things. If we integrate nature much more into other policies, that could save some, that could deliver some savings to the, to the, to the public budget. And then the third win, is the potential change in people's behaviors towards more sustainable lifestyles. And that's something you need if you want to move towards a low carbon economy and deliver all the change you need to deliver to meet the, to, to face the environmental challenges that we face. But as I said in the third one, it's a potential travel, it's a potential win. So rewilding can be the solution that can help you to do that. But you, you might need to find a a more persuasive way to reach the decision makers and the wider section of society because otherwise you could alienate some people saying well i mean yeah, i'm against rewilding <laughs> if you were the uh, the chancellor and the next uh, the next budget was to be one which truly put nature at the heart of it what would what kind of things would be in there do you think good question i put um you know what I would I would create a, a fund for an ecosystem an ecosystem restoration fund, okay, and that fund would help restore ecosystems. So it would help us move from overexploited systems to sustainable managed systems. Because to move from overexploitation to sustainable management, you need to ease the pressure on those systems, okay, and. I would give you two examples. One would be the seas, so the, 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 the fish stocks. Um, you let them grow, you have more fish. But to let them grow, you need to reduce fishing. To reduce fishing means fishermen will have less income. So this fund would help manage the transition, letting fishing communities live through this period and um, maybe improving their fishing techniques so that they are more environmentally friendly and so on. Okay. Another example would be soil fertility restoration and trying to, to use this fund to increase the fertility of our soil systems, which is being dramatically reduced and, and, and lost. And that would 
that would fund um, farms to um, leave some significant amounts of, of land um, fixate, to be able to fixate nitrogen and other um, nutrients naturally through different crops and then so that after three or four or five or seven years you have restored the, the quality of those soils and that will allow you to deliver food for many more years in a much more stable way. And this is just an example of, of how you could use that, that, that fund. You could also use that fund obviously for to guarantee the good management of nature reserves because what happens is that you protect some spaces and then those spaces are not managed properly and you need to take some action to restore them to guarantee high nature spaces and to meet all our biodiversity commitments you need some some investment and then the key question is like where would you get the money from i don't know if you had that as the next question <laughs> or what would you because that's what economists will tell you if you're going to fund this what where are you taking this money from what else are you going to stop funding hmm? mm -hmm. so um you you could find many different solutions whether you move some some money from the ministry of defense and then you don't do trident and then you do more nature conservation but one solution that we could consider is to use strategic quantitative easing which you know uh, tony tony greenham is something that he's written about and it's about using our central bank to generate money that goes to fund this um, transition towards sustainable managed ecosystems mm -hmm. and this is more we would be printing money to do that rather than giving it to banks and then expect them to to lend it to what we think should be lent to yeah, yeah. so that 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 would be something I would say. but can I just add something as well if I was the Chancellor I would also change lots of things from the Treasury Green Book to ensure that the way we do economics captures the environmental and societal needs much better. For a starter, I would reduce the discount rate that it's used in cost-benefit analysis. Because if you use a, I mean, I know this is a bit complex to, to, to explain, but if you use a high discount rate, then any long-term investment, the benefits coming, resulting from a long-term investment are going to be zero or very little. So any long-term project um, there will be less incentives to invest in any long-term project as a result of having high interest rates. And this affects lots of social, society and environmental restoration projects because delivering environmental restoration or societal goals takes lots of long time. And if you have a high discount rate, you're making it less likely that people invest into that.